The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for Little Dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya! The only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 50 recorded February 16th, 2014 starts now. Well, Big Al, what do you think of that bit of fanciness? Man, I tell you what, the equipment's just improved. You got a little, uh, little laptop, little thing over there next to your computer. You got your, you know, your, your soundboard and everything else. And damn, you're getting high tech, Dave. I am. <laughs> I'm pretty damn fancy. Here. <laughs> now, if only I had the eyesight to read these little letters, you know. I yeah. Could really use this soundboard. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me let me tell you, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> I know. My arms already aren't long enough. I'm going to no, have to use yours. It, that's it. Oh, and uh, well, welcome to hi Gala episode 50, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Big Al's back in the house. That's right. We finally got Big Al back in the big swivel chair. <laughs> well, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> yep. That's okay. You're not that old. I can still lure you over the house with the promise of beer. True. It's true. And sexy time, but we, we don't need to talk about that right now. God, please, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we've already had enough disturbing conversations oh, God, today. It's, it's, it's been odd from the start, so we're going to try to get a little saner here than yeah. where we've been earlier. Or at least a little more upbeat. Uh, enough of the colostomy bags and enlarged hearts and broke down... Uh, broke dick dogs. But. Broke dick dogs, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Angus was really going after that ball. <laughs> it was bound to happen sooner or later. Oh, man. Uh, no, but, you know, since it's episode 50, uh, and I've got Big Al in the chair, one of the first things I wanted to address here, and by the way, we got a, a great show coming up for you. All kinds of stuff. Uh, the the linchpin of this thing being we have an interview with Damon Young, who is the editor of Martial Arts and Philosophy, Beating in Nothingness. And uh, also a martial artist himself and a professional philosopher. So uh, as I said on the Facebook page, uh, now's your chance to get your thinking tukes warmed up because uh, we're going to tax your brain a little later. But I already did that, so Big Al's looking really worried over there. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. you ought to see the look on Dave's face, my God. Uh, yeah, I was struggling to keep up myself. <laughs> Big Al, it's like trying to teach a dog to type, though, Big Al. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to leave him out of that part. <laughs> I'm not going there, folks. I'm not going it there. It doesn't work, and it pisses the dog off. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, since I've got you in the chair, I just uh, I wanted to say thanks. Because, uh, you know, through thick and thin, Big Al's always been one of the few people that, that – fucking believes in me <laughs> i don't know why either but he does and he always knows when to say the right thing you know before uh when we're tr- you know coming up training and stuff people are like oh that, that dave you know do you know he thinks this or he does this he doesn't do that quite like you do blah 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 and uh and what do you usually say big al 
<laughs> I don't know anymore. I'm getting so. <laughs> well, okay. well, we'll leave that behind for a second. But case in point, the other day I showed up to do my class just yesterday. And for whatever reason, it wound up being a no-show. It was this little old me left in the park. And uh, the shingy guys all left. And uh, I was up there just, you know, I'm like, well, hell, I'm down here. I'm going to work out. And I felt like I was having a rough day. And maybe <laughs> maybe I wasn't in a great mood because I didn't have anybody to train with or whatever. And, but I forced myself through it and went home. And I talked to Big Al later. And he's like, man, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so lost his keys. And we were sitting down here looking for his keys. And I looked up there and saw you doing it. I'm like, well, you know, I don't think most Bagua people can fight. But Dave looks like he knows how to fight. <laughs> well, suddenly, I, I felt know, better about myself again. <laughs> and, you know, the bottom line is this, is that, you know, coming through the whole thing. And, you know, Alan Pittman and, you know, what he taught and how he taught and what he does is, is extraordinary, his skill level. But, you know, I'm just going to be just blunt about it. There have just been few people that have picked it up and carried it to the point that Dave Jones has. And I'll say this over and over again. When I watch him do Bagua, and I'll look at a lot of Bagua during the week on YouTube, oh, my God. <laughs> and so, but when I watch Dave do his Bagua, there is, there's not only power and form, there's not much grace, but there's a lot of power and form. I do what I can <laughs> <laughs> with what I got. But, but you can see he understands how to use it. And, you know, that's the whole thing about this martial arts. I mean, I've had people tell me, oh, you know, oh, we do this and we don't spar and we do this. And I go, it's a fighting art, people. If you're not training your art, whatever it is, if you're not training to fight with it, go join a yoga class. It's better on your body. So, but you know, and I'll come back again, and I come back all the time to Dave. I mean, he, he, you can see that he puts the time and effort in this, and it shows. So the bottom line is, is that you know, and Dave's also, you know, and Dave's got a screw loose. You know, he's just, <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, he's not afraid to stick his hand in the fan. So it makes a difference, you know. Dave came with an attitude of willing to be able to fight. Now he's got Bagua on his side. Do not get in his way. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked about that before. That's one of those things. It's hard to teach somebody that you know willingness to fight, that attitude. And that allows me to plug the interview coming up in episode 51. We, uh, I had Rory Miller on to talk to, and he actually does a lot of work in that Exactly, and his book is excellent. So if you haven't read you know, Meditations on Violence, you have to. It is a great book. Here's a guy who comes from a prison guard perspective. And, you know, and what he says in there is very true, is that in a traditional martial arts class or setting does not prepare most of us for just an, you know, a vicious onslaught attack. And so, you know, and he's, you know, like I said, I'm actually interested in hearing that particular show because, you know, here's a guy that actually, you know, his job depended on him going home every day, depended on him doing his job right and the the people that were behind him. Yeah. So. Yeah. So stay tuned for that one, folks. Uh, It's going to be a good one, although Skype was stomping all over, so I'm going to have to really work to put that one together. (laughs) Oh, yeah, well, and Dave even suggested maybe call him back and, you know, and, and just re-record it. But, you know, if you can, you can. You know, yeah, so. I'm going to try. And they're trying to get him to come to Athens, Georgia here soon, you know, sometime in the spring or something. And if, the, you know, and if, it, if that happens, if you're in North Georgia, you need to attend. Yeah. 
We were talking, and thanks for all the sunshine up the bum there, Big Al. That's what I can always count on Big Al. When I'm down on myself or somebody else is down on me, Big Al will say, don't fuck with Dave. <laughs> well, and, and and again, this is not just blowing smoke up his ass, although he's got a really pretty ass to blow smoke up. The, the, I don't need to the, know the, that. <laughs> the, the fact is, is that, you know, sometimes when we, I teach my Xing Yi class, and we do a cross-section of Bagua to it. And today was a perfect thing is that, you know, when I get in there and we always go to do something, I'll sit there and say, now let's get Dave's perspective on it. And it's great because I get everybody else to look at this the one way. And then I get Dave to blow through somebody and I go, see what I'm talking about? You know, we don't spend in front of somebody. We don't dance around them. We go through them. And whether we're spinning or going straight or whatever it is, you know, our art is to occupy their space. So. And yeah. it doesn't hurt that we're teaching two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And we can find the same tactics in both martial arts, exactly. maybe with a little different emphasis or a little different setup or whatever, but it's all built around the same tactical framework. So yeah. it makes it easy. Oh, and we, when you look at the, you know, the, how big the gal system is by itself, and I'll say, well, this is our f- first tiger. And Gabe goes, no, it's up, it's uphold, you know? So it's the exact same thing. So when you look at the linear 64, even Alan Pittman said the linear 64 is basically Xing Yi. And then when you tie that together with the mother palms, it's a, it really is a very sophisticated art. But like I've always said about Bagua people, they seem to know what they're doing. They just don't have a clue where, where they're, they're going. going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one sound effect I don't have is the freaking uh, rim shot. Oh, well. Okay, well, let's move along to our actual discussion topic here before we bore the pants off our listeners. Uh, You mentioned watching, you know, Bagua videos on YouTube and stuff. So I have a question for you, and we'll kick this around. I think it's actually kind of a two-parter. And let's not use names, even though who we're talking about is going to know we're talking about them. (laughs) Uh, A student that trains with both of us and with Craig. What what up, Craig? (laughs) Uh, put a couple of YouTube videos up, uh, or Facebook videos. Oh, you may have missed it. His name begins with a T. Okay. And, uh, and he put up, uh, first linking for Machine and some changes and some snake palms with, uh, with a pair of hatchets. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Had, I a, got you. had his girlfriend filming him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I got you. And uh, the first part of this is, what do you think about the utility of videotaping yourself to improve your practice? Well, you know, I think it's a great, could be a great tool. Okay, so the bottom line is, is that it gives you an opportunity to be able to look at yourself. And, you know, I mean, how many times when we've actually recorded our voice for the first time, we heard, we listened to it, we go, that's not me. What the hell that is? Yeah. (laughs) And then I remember the first time that actually it was, when we were putting up sites for uh, pictures for paths and we were doing some stuff, I looked at my picture. I was looking at the forum. And I go, that's horrible. You can't possibly publish that, the, that video of me doing that stuff. So it's a great way to be able to look at yourself and say, oh, I'm not really nearly as good as I think I am. Or you can actually, even better than that, is actually say, no, that one looked really well. This is what I got to work on. Right. Yeah. Pick the good one out of the batch. Right. And then work on the bad stuff because, you know, we all think that we do, you know, we all think that we're really great and we look really good at doing all this stuff. And sometimes we go, oh, my God. But the other side of that is, 
is that we don't have it doesn't have to be pretty to be effective right so you know everybody's different and i know that you know we can take everybody who that we know that that came through allen's system doing the gal system and everybody seems to have their own little flavor to it mm-hmm. and that's an advantage because you know gal bagua just like shingy or any good martial arts a living breathing art so it changes by, by each person that does it yeah and frankly, we've all been park practitioners for so long now, we forget the luxury that some people have with studios with mirrors in them and stuff like that, where they can check their form in real time. We, we're kind of just relying on the teacher to tell us if we're doing it wrong or noticing ourselves, which I think can be an upside. You know, you don't get distracted by the outside part of it. Once you do get it right, you know how it feels, not just how it looks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you that, that videotaping yourself, seeing yourself on video can, can really, you know, open your eyes to stuff that you're doing that you may not even be aware of. Exactly. But let's take it to the next step. Okay. And why did you post it on YouTube? Or why did you post it on your Facebook? That's the second part. <laughs> and this gets into a fuzzy area where it's like, you know, uh, one, I don't want to get on there because it's public and start saying, that's looking better, but here's what you're doing wrong. You obviously fucked this up. You know, you watch your ear. It's going to wind up on the pavement. You know, this, this sort yeah. of stuff. You don't want to criticize him in a public forum. Right. Because he is improving, you know. Right. And the kid's got a ton of potential. But, you know, you also don't want to blow sunshine up his ass and make him think, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Right. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, put some more videos up. Make sure you tell everybody who showed you how to do it that way. You know, when you're not quite giving that full representation yet. Um, which he didn't do any of that. He just right. put it up as his own thing. So I'm not bitching about this. He's he's more than within his rights to videotape himself and yeah, put it on the it, YouTube. But you gotta you gotta wonder. It's like yeah, for self analysis video, great. Up on YouTube or up on your well, Facebook you know, page. And if, uh, and if you, what, what's going if, on with well, that? And if you, and if you do that, you have to understand that there's going to be people come out. And you're going to actually be up to cr- scrutiny. 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 I'll get it right here in a minute, folks. I like scrutiny myself. <laughs> but you're going to be up. People are going to, you know, and there's always going to be those people that don't have a clue what they're looking at anyway. They've been practicing some art, and they're going to tell you that your stuff looks horrible or what have you. That's fine. You know, we, we dismiss them right off the bat. But if the minute you put your stuff up on YouTube, then you're inviting the rest of the world to come comment about it. Oh, and in YouTube in particular, <laughs> boy, will they ever comment. <laughs> and 99.9% of them don't have a clue what they're commenting about. They don't know what they're looking at. Yeah, but you're setting yourself up for a potential internet flame war, in which we've all engaged in a couple of those back in the day, you know, and it's it's it just doesn't deserve yeah, A, your good. time, or B, it's like when you put yourself out there, especially if you're still at the student stage, you know, and you're still kind of getting your head around it yep. and still yep. learning it, and yep. you put that up there, people are going criti- to criticize the shit out of it, and they're going to criticize whoever taught it to you. You're gonna, no, you're doing that all wrong. Whoever's teaching you is wrong. Okay. You're teaching no, no nothing. Right, exactly. And, you know, your teacher might be sitting there going, yeah, oh, he's my, wrong, but it's not my fault. No, he no, just I, doesn't I, know it that well <laughs> yet, you know? <laughs> well, and that's the, you know, the the classic case of the proverbial green belt in you know in the world you know yeah. they think they've arrived and they and, and they know something but they still don't know everything but you know a lot of the green belts think that oh yeah i'm i'm already at this level I'm walking death already oh yeah and then and forever and i've seen way too many green belts that 10 years later that they went in you know, after they got their black belt had still were green belts you know yeah 
Well, I like getting my green belt so much back in Ishinru Karate, I got it three times. <laughs> I'd get that green belt and then quit to chase skirts or whatever, you know, yeah, well, you know ride, ride all, bicycles. and We all have our priorities. Yeah, but then I would come back and fight my way back to green belt again. <laughs> so, again, you know, if, if there's a reason why, you know, you have to decide yourself. For me personally, I actually want to start doing a series of um, – video clips of actual of doing the forms and doing some applications and just narrowing it down to some really good stuff. Cause you know, 95% of all the stuff on the internet's crap anyway. Yeah. And then, then when you start looking at real martial arts, especially Shingy and Bagua, which, you know, when I started 20 years ago, there was nobody doing this stuff. There was just a handful of people. Now everybody seems to be doing, come out as being a master at Shingy and Bagua. Well, I think part of it's Tai Chi has lost so much of its reputation as a fighting art that it no longer carries the same cachet, and Bagua and Xing Yi still kind of carry that cachet as a fighting art. So now other people are wanting to kind of get on the bandwagon and add some legitimacy back into that side of it. Yeah, and if, you, and if you're going to depend on the YouTube for what style that you want to train, go for 52 blocks. Go for the prison stuff. I mean, that stuff is great, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah. simple. It's simple and easy it's, to learn. It's and, exactly. Yeah. You don't have to worry about a tradition. You don't have to worry about anything else. And then if you're going to end up in jail, you've got some skills. Mm -hmm. Which you can further <laughs> refine on the weight benches and the and out in the yard, you know, so. with the other fellas. But, you know, it's it's just – but what you're talking about doing, if, if you made something like that and put it up there, then you would stand for yourself, right? Exactly. It's like, this is me. you got a complaint with this. Something's wrong. Yes, it's me. I take full responsibility. Exactly. You can't blame my teacher because I'm independent now. That's right. It's all me. But when the student puts it up there, yeah. they're also kind of unwilling, unwittingly, I think yeah. – sometimes dragging their teacher out into the public and saying, oh, well, you can ridicule this guy now, too, because of what I just did. Yeah, but he's a good-looking kid, so, you know, he just maybe he just wants to go out there and say, people say, look how good-looking I am. I'm doing all this stuff, so. Yeah, but if you put it that way, then he couldn't get his girlfriend to film him. <laughs> She'd be like, uh-uh. Well, maybe she didn't understand until she yeah. hears his podcast. <laughs> oh, I hope she ain't listening. I'll be in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we're not trying to out this guy or embarrass him. It just made no, no, me start no. thinking about it, you know? And again, I think Facebook was a much safer place to do it than YouTube because, oh my God, YouTube. Well, the, the YouTube comment sections are often like the lowest point of humanity. Oh, you yeah. Can find. And, and at least Facebook, you've, you've limited it to the people you call your friends. Yeah. So, you know, but you're still going to realize that if you, you, you post this stuff in public, the viral is actually a good term for it. Not that it spreads all over the place, that it becomes very sickening. <laughs> so, and again, it can induce a we have seen way too many times on Chingy and Bagua and Tai Chi bulletin boards where, you know, people just start flaming this whole thing of, oh yeah, you know, y'all don't have a clue what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and we've always had the same thing. Well, just come show up in our camp and show us what's wrong. We're doing wrong. Yep. And it's amazing how far out of their way some of those people would go not to show yeah. up. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, although, you know, on one occasion, again, I won't name names just because I'm not going to drag other people into the discussion, but uh, we actually had a flame war. I had a flame war with a guy one time that in the end, I gave him the invitation. Hey, we're doing a retreat. Why don't you come out and see what we're doing? And uh, he came out. Yeah. 
And aside from Craig getting all janky-eyed on him that first <laughs> night, we all got along really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was a nice guy, and we, you know, we learned stuff from each other. So. Exactly. And in that particular case, he actually got to see Bagua from a completely different perspective how he was taught. Yeah, and it was the same system. It was the exact same yep. system, but he saw it from a different perspective, and I think it was a little eye-opener for him. It was different than what he was used to, but yeah. you know, we, you know, he, he's like, you guys really love to elbow, as <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah, because we, we like to get up front and personal. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I think the reason that one worked out well is because you know he was a young student when the actual flame war went down, and I was still, you know, I just started teaching. I hadn't been teaching for too long independently of Alan, and uh, you know, we were having this thing back and forth, and. Uh, some of his teachers found out he was doing that. And this is what I, this is getting back to what I was talking about when you put the video out there, when you're the, the right. newest student, some of his, uh, teachers got wind of this thread because it was in a very public martial arts forum and they came to him and they said, you stop arguing right now. And you apologize to him. And I said, and he did. And I'm like, well, hey, no problem, no foul, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and the, one of the great things was is when the, when the heat would get really get on on this particular um, website, this bulletin board type thing, is that when it would really get heat, Dave would send me an email or call me up and go, look what's happening. And so I'd jump right in, <laughs> and, jump, and Dave would go, go on. And I'd just jump right in and go, no, 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 you guys don't get to say that. We get to say that. Y'all don't get to say that. <laughs> yeah, we can fuck with Dave all day <laughs> long. Like, but y'all don't get to do that. Mm, that's no, no, family. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. That's right. This is this is in-house deal. This is family. So. Oh, yeah. That was back when we were young and dumb. There were, oh, even, yeah. there were even offers to buy a couple of plane tickets, as I recall, uh, <laughs> just know. to shut somebody yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> What was your deal? Buy a plane ticket? Well, I'll no, meet you at the airport well, between see, the hospital the, and the, the bar. The great thing that we have at Hartsfield International Airport now, and it's Bainter Jackson Hartsfield International Airport, is that there's a hospital and a bar right next to a hotel right next to one another. And I got called out, and I simply told the guy, I said, look, I'll buy you your rain, rain, rain fare, excuse me, your uh, airfare, and um, if you show up, I said, we will go fight in the parking lot. Now, the winner has to take either us into the emergency room or the loser into the bar, but the loser has to buy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he made a comment to me that he simply said, you know, I drool when I get hit. And I said, well, I drool when I hit somebody. <laughs> so it's a high stamp of approval. So, you know, the bottom line was is he actually wrote a very long personal email and then posted it as well as saying, I apologize. I didn't mean this to sound like I was calling you out, uh, you know, but you know, and it really is. And that's one of the things that I dislike about emails or in even, uh, you know, posting stuff. It's hard to, uh, to actually show emotion or show your actual intent right. in writing some of this stuff that people are very easily to read your post and go, Oh no, I can't believe you said that to me and take it as an insult when it was actually meant to, to be something clearly different. A, yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. And, and God, this was even before the days of frequent use of emoticons. <laughs> <laughs> At least those help a little. You can put the winky face with the tongue sticking yeah, out. People know, oh, he's yeah. just pulling my chain or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and especially when Dave posts on, you know, on on his Facebook stuff, when you know, he has to put those little winky things at you because he likes to, you know, nobody's safe when he posts. <laughs> Yeah. Well, about the first year after Ola was born, when I was spending a lot of time at home with an infant, I was the terror of Facebook. 
<laughs> oh, but oh, we're getting a little far off the martial arts there. But anyway, I get, to sum this up, uh, one, yeah, videotape yourself, especially if you don't train someplace where you can watch yourself in the mirror or whatever. And videotape yourself at home, not when you're at class. A lot of people want to videotape class, and I don't really like that, you know, because, uh, again, that puts it on the tee. It's like, oh, now you're doing a presentation. Yeah, but, you know, the one thing we did get Alan to do, and, and we got him to do this. Let's see, I started in 94, 95, and it was about 97 or 98. And Glenn, the guy that actually got me started with Alan, asked, simply asked Alan, can we, can we video record this so we have a record? And that way we were able to go back. And many times I was wrong or Glenn was wrong, and we could actually look back and go, no, 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 this is what he did. And Alan was very gracious. I mean, he never had any problems about that. He goes, no, yeah, just break the camera out. Yeah, and he's still kind of that way, but everybody has an understanding that it's not intended for dis- That's right. it dispersion is, on it, the it, internet. It, right, it, exactly. So this was in-house use only. This was for family only. So And back when everything was passed around on a VHS tape, that was a lot easier to maintain that sort of control. Yeah, but once, <clears throat> but once you make it digital. Yeah. Yeah, so, and it's always the newest students that want to do that. And wow. it's during class. They're not asking you to demo. They're just they're just like, well, let me. I'm just going to film some of this. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me specifically what you want to well, film, and I'll well, do that for you one time. I'll right. walk it through in a clear way, and then you can move on. But I don't want you just walking through my class. I'll, I'll edit that. Because it mess takes out. everybody out of the moment, if nothing else. Yeah, and it's just like when you're getting people to. We get emails all the time. Somebody's interested in class, and they want some, you know, resume. Of you know, of, of what's your lineage and everything else, and I go look. Show up to class. We can talk about everything from there. If you like what you see, then we can talk about it. But right. we we get a lot of people who go. Oh no, I need to know what your lineage is before I come. And I go, don't come. Yeah, <laughs> just stay <home. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do yourself a favor. Do especially do me one because I well, most know, of those people won't ever show up. They, they don't just show want to have in, the lineage they don't show talk up anyway. over and over. They again. don't show up yeah. anyway. And then again, I had this was another thing, and, and it's not quite on the vein of what we're talking about. But I had That's some okay. let it roll. But I had somebody actually come to my class last year, and halfway through the class, I realized that I did not want this guy to come back. So now I'm sitting there going, "How do I discourage him without being rude or insensitive or dis- or disrespectful?" So I started doing comments out of the back door. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like little things I would simply go, you know, and say. And fortunately, he didn't show back up. And the reason I didn't want him to come back, he was a very angry person. Right. <laughs> you know, he was he had a lot of issues, you know, maybe with the way he was you know, raised or whatever it is. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not a psychologist. But right. the bottom line, he was angry. And the more I started showing him stuff in class, he was getting angry. And I go, I cannot teach this guy. So there's a, you know another part of this thing is is uh, how do we control this same thing about and if we're putting stuff out there on the internet and you know you got people that go no I don't want this guy to show up you know you know we have to be careful about who we bring to class so the more that we put out on the internet might be encouraging the wrong type people to be coming in the class yeah, I mean, that's one of the beauties about not having a storefront to maintain and a roof over your head for your classes. It's easy to tell people no. Yeah. Because you don't need that person to make the bills. Right. Now, if you're trying to live off of it, that sucks for you. But, you know, <laughs> but if you want to control the environment that you teach in 
And uh, uh, there's a story recently up in Canada where this guy asked for some dispensations in a keto class. And uh, he was um, uh, some sort of strict Muslim. So he couldn't train with women. He couldn't look at women. You know, and this half the people in the school were women, you know, and it was in a government building, too. I don't know what was going on with that. I don't have I don't have the story in front of me. But the bottom line was the teacher let it get to the point where, uh, you know, they had all the women facing one wall and this guy facing the other way. And they just went overboard accommodating him. And finally, he's passing out pamphlets in class about, (laughs) you know, come worship the one true God and, you know, belt your wife if she disobeys you and all this stuff. And finally, one of the women in class said, no, this this ain't going to go on and started putting her foot down. But. You know, I, you don't want to have to make these dispensations for people. If you- exactly. And, and here's a ex- prime example. I have some limitations of my body as I get older. Mm-hmm. And I've actually met some other people, and I like some of the stuff that they were training and doing. But when I went to their class and saw what they were doing, I simply, they were going to have to make that dispensation. They were going to have to change their style of teaching. And I said, no, I'm not going to get involved because it's not my place to get them to change for one person. Now, I could hire the guy to do private lessons, things of that nature. Right. But I don't need to be a part of his class because that's being disrespectful for him because now he can't teach his class. Yeah. And it's an entirely different thing, I think, when you're talking about a physical disability right. than somebody that just because of their attitude or their religion or their whatever needs exactly. you to bend over backwards exactly. to make the world shake around. And so them. the bottom line is, is for that, those individuals, again, regardless, of, you know, if it becomes mental or physical, you need to choose. You need to find someplace else that are the same pe- are the same type of people. Yeah, find the same group that are teaching this stuff, and then they already understand it, so it's not an issue. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, all right, well, okay. I think we've done it. Okay. <laughs> I'm wow. not going to force you to sit here all day. You're not. And we got a whopper of an interview coming up. Well, how many more of those little those little sound things you got over there? Uh, how about this one? <laughs> no, I like that. That's <laughs> you recognize all right, that, all right, you? all right, all right. <laughs> now, you, know, you need to understand, you didn't see head, Dave's head go back as I hit him three times. Bap, bap, bap. It was so fast, I didn't even see it. <laughs> Prepare to fight. <laughs> All right, I like this stuff. Where'd you get this stuff? I know. I'm glad you get this little thing from. Well, it's just a it's just an app you can download onto okay. your iPad. That's all it is, and then you Man, just put your little sounds in there, and everything's fantastic, and everyone's excited and loves you. Oh, no, really. Man, that's warm and fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but hey, you know, I, I appreciate Dave inviting me back again. He actually invited me back uh, last Sunday, and I bailed out on him. But it was my wife's birthday, so I had a good excuse. <laughs> See, I told you Big Al doesn't listen to the podcast <laughs> if he's not on it. <laughs> Don't worry, I used your pseudonym when I explained that. Yeah. Big Owl. Big Owl. I said, I'm not going to say who it is, but his name sounds like Big Owl. (laughs) Big Owl, I already told you. And it really is kind of cute to listen to this little kid. You know, actually, you know, for some reason, I'm not Big Owl. I'm Big Owl. Big Owl? Big Owl. (laughs) Big Owl, I just told you. (laughs) All right, folks. All right, Before we beat that to death, I'm going to take Big Owl back out out to the Champagne Lounge because I promised him one more beer. And uh, I'm going to let you guys move along into the interview with Damon Young. Stay tuned. Okay, now, if y'all want to hear more of me, send cards and letters. (laughs) That's BR549. Yeah, we'll we'll make a deal on a used car with you while you're there. (laughs) 
philosophy. It's about life, existence, purpose, and of course, wisdom itself. to have in the virtual studio via Skype with me today, Damon Young. Mr. Young is a philosopher, writer, and commentator. Uh, He's authored two books, Distraction and Philosophy in the Garden, and he's an honorary fellow in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And probably more pertinent to you martial arts meatheads out there listening to this show, he also edited a book called Martial Arts and Philosophy, Beating and Nothingness, along with Graham Priest. And... uh, Let's uh, let's start out the way we usually do on this show and establish a baseline. Uh, and bear in mind, you are speaking mostly to martial artists and not philosophers here. <laughs> we'll, tr- we'll try to keep up. But uh, start out by telling us a little bit about your personal journey in the martial arts. You know what got you into it, and uh, and uh, what you what you're doing now. What what arts drew you in? That sort of thing. No worries. Okay. Well, I started in karate when I was. I th- 12 or 13, um, basically because I got into a lot of fights at school and my parents thought it would be a good idea. So they took me to the local um, dojo, which was a goju school, which are quite common in Australia. And I started there and uh, worked my way up to, to black belt and did, in fact, defend myself clumsily a few times <laughs> well now let me uh, l- let me ask you real quickly before we move past that did your parents think putting you in the karate dojo would reduce the incidence of of fighting or would just help you survive it <laughs> no they just they wanted to help me survive it okay. I, I don't think they had heard much about the idea that it can in fact make you less aggressive um and in fact that that was the result i was far less aggressive when i was training regularly um, and that's actually been a, a pattern um, but they had no idea that that would be the result. I don't think the, the karate as a peaceful way advertising message um, had reached them yet. So, no, they just thought it would sort of help me, <laughs> help right. me win fights. Um, and, uh, look, it certainly did help me. There are a number of occasions when I think I would have been more severely injured um, had I not been able to defend myself. Um, of course, had I known... What I now know about grappling, I would have got them to put me in judo. But you know, look, let's put that to one side. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, uh, I then I end, I stopped doing karate after about five years, and then and I didn't do anything for a while. And then I, I picked up um, a little bit of fencing. I tried aikido, and it just didn't work for me. And then much later, I took up judo, which I loved. Um, I thought it was just fantastic. It was an incredibly humbling experience um, to have these guys who, at the time, I was about 100 kilos. Um, I don't know what that is. That's about 220 pounds. Okay. And I was getting th- just thrown around, strangled and locked by dudes who were much smaller than I was. And that, that was fantastic. It was a real learning experience. But uh, one of those throws um, 
busted my neck and I couldn't try, I couldn't do anything for 10 weeks. Um, so it's been a gradual process of getting back my strength and um, capacities after that injury. Yeah, that's uh, neck injuries are scary ones, and uh, you know, throwing arts can can produce those. Uh, uh, did you have a doctor telling you, you know, don't get thrown like that again, or you could be rolling around in a wheelchair? Or, or? Basically, yeah. They they, they said um, I had a series of of MRIs and so on, and uh, they said, look, that you can you can lift weights, you can run, you can um, rock climb, you can do whatever you want, but don't do a throwing art. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> um, they were that. They were that, that specific. I said, "Really? I mean, you know, surely I could just be careful." She said, "Just don't do judo." Um, and I take from that, don't do Brazilian jiu-jitsu either. All right, uh, you know, anything that involves the net. I mean, and look, I, I don't know how much the experts knew about these arts. Um, they may have a really weird, horrific idea of what goes on, but certainly I am still very wary of my neck. Most of the time it doesn't trouble me, but when it rains, I feel it. Well, best of luck recovering completely from that one. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, and try not to land on your head in the meantime. <laughs> rock, <laughs> rock climbing could land you on your head too. I don't know. <laughs> They're being a little prejudiced toward the arts there, I think. But any any well, event. How did the connection between martial arts and philosophy first manifest itself to you? What made the little light go on saying, oh, here's a connection? Look, I suppose I was always kind of interested in reflecting on the martial arts. And I read, there was a book that really got me thinking about it, and it's called Zen in the Martial Arts by uh, Joe Hyams. Yes. And it has lots of sort of dinky anecdotes about Bruce Lee and, and Big Like Water and the fighting that isn't fighting and so on. But at the time as a teenager, um, it really got me to see the sort of meditative and reflective side of the martial arts um, because it's very easy for it just to become physical. It's just a series of physical motions. You're just kind of protecting yourself or, or uh, being aggressive towards another, trying to win and so on. So that really tempered... Um, I suppose, that mechanical view of things. But it wasn't until much later that I started really thinking about it. Um, and that was when I, I took up judo um, as a philosopher, as someone who was a practicing philosopher. And right. the, the philosophy behind judo, um, Kano's philosophy, is actually really quite well worked out. I mean, the dude was a, um, was a professional educator, and he really took some time to think about it. And so that got me thinking about, first of all, philosophizing about the martial arts, trying to think more clearly about what it is we do, what works, what doesn't, what values are embedded in the practices, um, but also thinking about what philosophies are in the martial arts. So um, something like uh, judo is, is, is non-mystical. It, you know, it, it's, it is not religious and it's not sort of spiritual in the way we usually think of that. It talks very much about, you know, energy balance, um, efficiency, quite utilitarian ideas, um, right. which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm quite attracted to it. There isn't a lot of mysticism in judo. Um, but it also, if you look at karate, if you look at taekwondo, they have these philosophies embedded in them. And part of um, part of my curiosity was, well, what, what are their philosophies? What are their ideas of the world? do they make a difference? Um, so I wrote a very long paper 
for a philosophical journal about courtesy in the martial arts and trying to understand in the Japanese martial arts why courtesy is so important. And that involved basically tracing uh, the role of courtesy in Shinto, in Confucianism and in Buddhism. And that's what kind of started me on this path of really thinking professionally about the martial arts. And then that then led to the book um, that you've spoken about. Great. Well, can can you elaborate on that just a little further? Uh, for instance, you know what what is the uh, the motivating reason for for courtesy in, in those specific arts, and and can you contrast that with something like, uh, uh, you know, it overlaps with the Chan Buddhism that you see in some of the Northern Shaolin, you know, uh, Chinese practices and stuff. Where where is it part of the Confucian, uh, you know, ethic that drives that courtesy, or is it something else? Okay. Well, there were there were three kinds of courtesy that, that I identified. The first was was a Shinto kind, and in Shinto, there's a real emphasis on purity, on a kind of single mindedness um, of consciousness, where the most important thing is is sincerity. It isn't. It doesn't matter much what you're sincere about. It's that commitment that's important. That's the um, act of being sincere itself that elevates you. Exactly, yeah, and that, that's a very big part of, uh, in karate, what's called kimei. It's this idea of a kind of singular consciousness where you are fully committed to what you're doing, um, to the techniques and to the moment. Um, and it, it's this sense of purity. And now in, in, in some other arts, they talk about this being a kind of flow state, um, but whatever it's called, it's this idea that you, you can't be a good karateka unless you are fully committed, unless you, you somehow are devoted to what's happening right now. And that's a kind of courtesy because you do your an opponent a disservice or you do your teacher a disservice if you're not kind of fully there, if you're only half assed there. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the first kind. Um, the second kind comes from Confucianism, yeah. And that's more about notions of knowing what the right thing to do is at the right time and place. So Confucianism is not a rule-based philosophy. They don't say, okay, well, here is what you do in all circumstances. Don't break this rule. Um, Instead, the Confucian philosophy is what's called a virtue ethics. And virtues are kind of dispositions that you gain from experience that give you a knack of knowing what the right thing is to do in the right time and place. So I'll give you an example. When you're um, fighting in the dojo, the idea is that you're supposed to hit someone or try to hit them, but you're not supposed to pull your punches because that's you know really disrespectful unless you're um, fighting a very inexperienced opponent. But nor are you supposed to try to hammer them completely um, and and destroy them um, because then you can't train together. You need to be able to trust your opponent to deliver the right amount of force for the occasion. And if you do um, hit them too hard, you're not supposed to sort of burst into tears and start screaming how sorry you are, but nor are you meant to sort of jump up and down laughing and say, ha-ha, sucker. Um, There's a kind of middle ground where you, you demonstrate that you're sorry. Um, in karate, for example, it might be sitting off to the side with your back turned, um, which was what we were taught to do when we'd, we'd hurt someone too much, when we might have injured them. But you wouldn't do that if you just grazed them. Um, 
So it's a matter of knowing exactly the right way to demonstrate goodwill in that situation, which is really important when you're hitting each other. And, um, and the idea is that we're all responsible for this in Confucianism. We all have a responsibility to maintain this community. And a dojo is the same. It's basically a community of people who are involved in regular violence and you need to continually demonstrate goodwill and how do you go about it. So courtesy in this Confucian sense is a sort of a continual effort to, to maintain and display the goodwill um, required to fight on a regular basis. And there's no easy rule about it. You, you have to kind of learn um, the right thing to do, the right balance of behavior. So it's um, sort of a circumstantial utilitarianist approach to it, you know, just enough, not too much, uh, to increase the benefit of, of both parties to, to the maximal extent possible. Well, it, we, uh, for, for Confucians, there often isn't an um, the, uh, outcome there. So it's not just about maximizing pleasure or pain. Um, it's about demonstrating a particular kind of character. Now, a utilitarian yeah. might come along and say, yeah, but that has definite benefits. I'd agree. And I think the <laughs> Confucians probably would too. But the emphasis in Confucianism is on character, is in what it is to be a good man. Uh, yeah. or a, uh, to demonstrate Ren, which is sort of humaneness. Right, um, humanity, uh, yeah. So, and look, it seems to me that, as you say, that has definite benefits when you're hitting each other. And, and, and also um, what I've suggested elsewhere is that this is not just the case for so-called traditional martial arts school. I mean, I don't think they really are traditional, but let's call them that. Right. If you go to, um, you know, wrestling school or if you train with mixed martial artists, you still have to have this balance, this kind of reciprocity where you can trust each other because you can't train if you don't trust each other. If you think someone's going to just start wailing on you, if, if, they're, if they're not going to pull off the lock when you tap, yeah. um, you can't trust them. That would be the last time you rolled with that guy, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and, and we all know that guy. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, in Confucianism, that guy has, has failed to cultivate Rin, a sort of humaneness. Uh, um, okay, so that's that's two. The third version of courtesy is is a Zen form of courtesy, and as I argue it, it, it can be a kind of brutality because what you're trying to do is shock someone out of their egotism. You're trying to get them used to the idea um, that their self is a bit more porous and fluid and and um, illusory than, than they might think. And so in, in, the, in that book, um, uh, Martial Arts and Philosophy, I give the example of my black belt grading where I just sort of, um, I was really full of myself. <laughs> I am on um, a black belt. I am just the hardest man on the planet. Right. And uh, afterwards, I, I just got the ego pummeled out of me. And these, these dudes weren't being malicious or cruel. Um, they were sort of delivering just the right amount of force um, to pop the bubble of my ego. And that, to me, is a very Zen message. And you read the stories of the Zen masters <laughs> thumping their students with a stick, you know, or shocking them somehow. And it undermines uh, sort of the sense of our own importance and the idea of this kind of um, thing we think we have, this mind. Yeah. And I think martial arts training can often undo 
that illusion. Well, it's a powerful teaching tool. I, I, I have a student that posted something on Facebook the other day because in a different context, he's starting to teach some martial arts as well. And okay. uh, the, the basic gist of it was, uh, you know, love teaching the kids. Uh, they try something, whomp, <laughs> you let them have it just like my <laughs> teachers did to me. And then you back up and say, okay, let's look at why that happened. <laughs> yep. You've got their yep, attention exactly. then. Yes. And I look that that humility is something I've, I've written about elsewhere for the newspapers. Uh, look, we all know that martial arts can breed a certain arrogance. Um, we can breed that guy. Right. But certainly in my experience, um, martial arts has been a fantastic tool for humility. And that's, that's not just as a martial artist, but as a philosopher. Um, you learn that you can't rush it. You learn that there are people who are superior to you. And as opposed to philosophy, there's nowhere to hide when you're fighting. If you get it wrong, you get hit. You get right. bruised. You get a bloody nose. You can't squirm out of it as you can in the academy by using the right kind of language or, you know, being, being um, a bit sleazy with your arguments. Um, unless you're in a school that is kind of a bit dodgy, that doesn't train properly, that is more about myths and um, charismatic authority than training, oh, you can't yes. get away with that. You, you just get thumped. Right. <laughs> Keeps you on the straight and narrow. Uh, I think so. Yeah. But yeah, certainly... In, in my experience, uh, doing martial arts, I think, made me a better philosopher. Um, you uh, touched on how, you know, uh, uh, getting into martial arts or something like that can actually uh, reduce your inclination to fight or, or the amount of fights you get in. And what I found, like, I taught high school PE for a while, and I would I would tell these kids as they were getting ready to graduate and go off to college – it's like uh, if if you do martial arts or just something that gives you enough confidence in yourself not to react to all the dominance uh, offers of dominance violence out there. Hey, ugly. Hey, stupid. You're a uh, you're a faggot or whatever, you know, and walk away from that without your ego being torn to shreds. Then you'll yep. avoid most of the violence you're going to encounter in life. Yeah, I think um, there's quite a bit of research on this um, that shows counterintuitively that regular training in the martial arts can actually reduce antisocial behavior and promote pro-social behavior. Um, and they're not entirely sure about the mechanisms, but um, we can certainly identify a few. And the first one is having a strong authority figure. And so those dojos where um, the teacher um, is a good guy, you know, has integrity, has some sense of, of ethics, responsibility, and care, that's passed on to the, the students. Um, but I, th I think it's more than that. Oh, and I should add, this is not just necessarily in so-called traditional dojos. That can be the case in, a, in an MMA school. Um, it can be the case in a boxing ring. You know, authority is really important. Yeah, and a lot of what people call traditional, you know, Boxing is a much older art than Taekwondo, for instance, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so traditional, in, uh, unfortunately, it can often just be a, a marketing term, it, you know? So people are, are somehow disenchanted with modern life and they think they can buy some traditional Asian authenticity at the local mall through karate. Look, it's not going to work. It's, it's a modern art. Right. But, um, but look, I, I use the word because it's... Um, because it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one thing. Authority is important, but um, the martial arts also allows us to take 
our so-called darker urges, um, like sort of aggression uh, or, or um, sort of some of those competitive urges and channel them in a safe, respectful environment. Um, so certainly when I was a teenager, for example, one of my impulses was to fight, to lash out physically. Um, now, in, in a school setting, that's a disaster. In the dojo, if that can be trained, harnessed, that's a fine thing because everyone expects it. It's consensual. Yes. So it, what you're doing is taking um, a sort of natural inclination towards violence and socializing it. And at the same time, and this is the third thing, you're learning discipline. You can't do well in any martial art unless you have physical and mental discipline. So, for example, you can't go out boozing, that is drinking, um, on a Friday night if you've got your grading the next day or if you've got competitions. So you learn gradually to internalize these disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly in my experience and others, and I think some of the research backs this up, and the features of, of competition and regular exercise um, mean that people have to learn basically to control themselves. Yeah, which is often a hard thing to learn in sort of a modern social context. You know, uh, food, entertainment, uh, everything else, luxury is so easily attained that it, you know, it it almost takes something external like a martial arts discipline or something like that to impress, especially on younger people, how to, you know, how to develop self-control. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And what what you hopefully learn is not just um, deference to authority because, you know, some martial arts schools, as I said, are these kind of charismatic authority shows where everyone bows uh, to the master and the master is the source of ancient wisdom, very rarely so, of course. Yeah. Um, but what you should learn are techniques and tricks and rituals of disciplining yourself. In other ways, it becomes a way of enhancing your own capacity to manage yourself um, at its best anyway. And, and certainly, um, in fact, the, uh, my latest book, which I may not have, have mentioned, to you is actually how to think about exercise Hmm. and so this is actually a this is a broader thing which is about all the ways different exercises including the martial arts but also rock climbing swimming running weightlifting can be used to cultivate parts of ourselves including our mind Um, so it's it's kind of it's really taking responsibility for yourself but using these tools to do it well, it's very interesting. And I like, for instance, I practice and teach a quote unquote traditional uh, Chinese art that uh, Bagua, which, you know, has references to the I Ching and the way it's organized and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm a thoroughly, uh, uh, you know, I have a naturalist worldview. <laughs> so sure. I'm, I don't, uh, but I still teach and practice the quote unquote Qigong exercises in the system and the meditations and stuff because they're powerful tools, even though there's nothing magical about them, you know, yep. whether it's just yeah, yeah. physically calming yourself via deep breathing or that sort of thing, or just, you know, I'll look at some of the, some of the mental gymnastics is, uh, just, it, it's, it's like, um, self psychology, you know, you get to explore a certain idea uh, in a certain way. And, you know, uh, all of that I think was put into these systems by people who knew that, uh, you know, that they were looking for any kind of edge they could get. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Aikido is a good example of that. I mean, some of the specific techniques 
of Aikido mm-hmm. are fantastic. If, if you learn to apply them well against resisting opponents, right. um, that, of course, is what's often missing when people just kind of throw themselves at you and then at the and ground. Flip, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the techniques are fine, but the philosophy that comes with it, um, where Shiba's philosophy is often just all oh, nuts. Um, and so... You, you need to be able to separate some of the metaphysical claims of these systems from how they work and, and whether they work or not. And in in How to Think About Exercise, I actually have a chapter on yoga and tai chi and meditation. And one of the conclusions of, of the chapter is you don't have to believe in Hindu metaphysics to get the feelings that the the yoga texts talk about the feelings are real the sense of oneness for example that you get from meditation yeah scientists have provided quite a lot of evidence about that likewise for tai chi but you don't have to believe in prana you don't have to believe in chi for these to work um so and i don't think there's anything wrong with approaching these things critically taking the best of them yeah, sort of separating the wheat from the cultural baggage chaff that goes yeah, along with exactly. it. Excellent. Uh, okay, one of the things you were talking about earlier has carried me on to this. Uh, and, you know, free will. How does the idea of free will, uh, especially in light of, you know, the empirical data that we're getting on some of this stuff, you know, you were talking about the sense of flow, the, the being in the moment thing. Um, yep. Uh, so how, do, how does uh, the idea of free will affect training and fighting? I mean, obviously, you know, the flow, you, you can't think about fighting while you're fighting just no, like just like you can't think about talking while you're talking you'll get your your tongue will tie just like mine just did sure yeah look um the question of free will itself is is very complicated and extremely specialized um so i mean uh, and i'm certainly not up on all of the recent research and theories oh sure but, but i can say this um what interests me about martial arts, particularly fighting, but also forms, but particularly fighting, is the idea that it is not calculating, okay? So you're not there reflecting on this movement and that movement while you're doing it, particularly stand-up fighting. Yeah. Uh, I, I do know that sometimes in grappling you, 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 there is time to reflect, and yet nonetheless I think movements often flow seamlessly from one to another because of the training. Anyway, and yet, when you're fighting, you're still acting rationally. It is still a rational response to movements. And and afterwards, if you are asked, well, why did you do it that way? Why did you block it that way? Well, because I was sort of directing him that way so that his waist would be open so I could punch him in the ribs or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, I wanted to get around to that side of him so I could so I could put a choke on. Now, what you're, still, what you're doing is rational. It demonstrates um, some kind of logic, but it isn't about thinking. And so the, one of the important insights from martial arts is that it teaches you to disentangle rationality from thinking. We can have a rationale embedded in practice, um, but that's quite different to sitting and cogitating about it. Okay, so that, that's one distinction. Now, what does that have to do with free will. Okay. First of all, we can freely cultivate practices that are rational. Training is an example of that. Um, Training virtuously is another example of that. Mm -hmm. What that means is 
in situations that are anxious or, or stressful or uncertain, hopefully we will respond so-called spontaneously with that rationality embedded in our practice. So the whole idea of drilling is that, you know, when we have to, we will respond in a very particular way. And yet that way will still be rational. It will have a logic embedded in it. But won't so require conscious thought at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So okay. you won't sit, think, well, I need to respond really quickly um, with a block and a strike. You'll just do it. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you can say uh, – there's a quote by Bruce Lee when he said, you know, I can't be responsible for what I do. It just takes over. Um, it being, you know, the training, the force, whatever it is. I think that's nonsense. Um, I, I think you are what you train to be. If you train badly, um, then you will fight badly. Um, if, if you train aggressively and cruelly and maliciously, you will fight that way. So this is partly an Aristotelian point. We are, in part, our habits, but yeah. our habits can be cultivated rationally. Um, the point about free will, though, is interesting because often what people are most drawn to in in the Asian so-called traditional martial arts is this notion of acting without thought, acting spontaneously. Um, Being in one with the Tao, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a kind of... A, attack on rationality there you know we westerners are so rational man but we just need to learn to just be but that's actually not what happens you you have you know often quite freely conscious developed certain training habits and what you're trying to do is absolve yourself of ethical responsibility for how you act um if, if you act spontaneously in a situation you do the wrong thing it's on you it's it's not on it's not on the Dow. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, not on it's on you, man. Um, now, but but as far as freedom of the will, look, I, I think Sartre. If you look at someone like Sartre, his idea is that we're perfectly free. Consciousness is freedom. Is this kind of self-choosing existence that can say no to everything? That to me just seems false. Yeah, um, we are. So creatures of habit and instinct and necessity, and I think our sphere of freedom is often very limited. Um, and perhaps there's an important difference between kind of free will, as philosophers often think about it, and what is voluntary. I think we can act in a voluntary way. We can act autonomously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whether or not this is this much vaunted freedom of the will, I don't know. I think we're probably a lot, a lot less um, free than we think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that position. Um, and you know, it's what's beautiful about martial arts. One of the things is that it is a way to exercise your freedom of will because you can, you can step back before the problem and establish. Uh, you know, you you use your rational conscious mind then to establish a pattern of practice that will hopefully produce the results you want in that time when you can't think. That's right, and and also, it forces you to confront often. Um, situations and states of mind when you are not free. And so if you, you think of occasions when you've been in a, in a fight, um, like a real fight, a fight against yeah. strangers on the street, for example, and you realize how little freedom you have, you realize how much 
uh, of what you do is instinct and and flight and horror yeah. um, and so on and weakness and blindness and all yeah. of these things that are constantly with you. It's just they're not tested. Yeah, and what I've found so, talking with other martial artists, and this has been the case with me too, in, in an actual confrontation, like you said, a fight with other people on the street, even if I win the fight, even if I come out just fine at the end and I did everything perfect, I, I can't really remember what I did. It's like, it's almost like a blackout state, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. And I've not, I don't know about other people's experiences, but certainly in my experience, even when I've come away ostensibly having done quite well, I don't feel good about myself. Right. You know, I'm shaking, I'm shaking from adrenaline. I'm half ashamed at what I've done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, pr- proud at having sort of not getting completely pummeled, but at the same time a bit horrified by the whole situation and and still fearful. Now, it may be that I'm just a particularly weak, <laughs> sort of cautious and flawed individual, but the idea is that it, it, it brings home to you over and over again that you are not this completely free, masterful consciousness in charge of itself. Yeah. It, it's it's sort of you, you have a limited stock. Yeah, it's it, it, one. it gives you sort of a view of yourself as an animal as opposed to a human being, or that's the way it's felt to me at times. Like you know, I was I just the facade of my humanity just slipped, and I was just an animal for a minute, and that's kind of scary, you know. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and of course, you can be better or worse trained, as we've said. You can take responsibility for the rationality that's embedded in you, um, but sort of the vision of humans is this this perfect rational agent perfectly free and in control um just it it strikes me as nonsense in those situations and even if you're looking at these outstandingly trained um fighters um they can still be very confronted by violence there's a there's a video with uh who's the dude who was in the the first UFC Frank Frank Mirror? No, not Frank Mirror. Uh, Frank Shamrock. Shamrock, yep. Yeah. And there was a discussion with him where he's talking about uh, watching the first UFC back in the, you know, the, the training room. You know, they, they were watching the first fights unfold. In the green ready room, for yeah. Green fights. And he, he watched uh, the, the Dutch karateka kick Tui, I think his name is face. It was like a, a, you know, a soccer kick, a football kick in the face while the dude was on the ground. Right. There were teeth flying everywhere. Yep. And Shamrock said, you know, suddenly the, the dressing room went quiet <laughs> and every, all of us just realized, oh, wow, this is, this is real. You know, this, and there's this, there was this sense that even from these dudes, um, this was confronting. This was this was um, serious violence. Yeah, and this, you know these are some of the that some of them, uh, like Shamrock, for example, are some you know finely trained individuals who are, who are obviously well used to violence, and yet there is something in us, something very primal that responds to these violent situations. Absolutely. Well, how can? Uh being a philosopher, uh, you know, we've talked about getting up to that point and during that point, uh, are there schools of philosophy or certain techniques that 
that philosophy can give you that can help you deal with the consequences of violence, with the aftermath, you know, win, lose, or draw after it's over, what does philosophy say to you at that point? And I realize well, it's very broad. <laughs> no, look, I mean, one, one response is something like Stoicism. Stoicism, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, um, what, one of its points was to distinguish between what you can control and what you can't. And a lot of our anxiety comes from um, trying to control things that we simply can't, like other people's impressions. Right. Um, and so you need to, to realize that your, your sort of sense of, of well-being or of safety or of calmness can't come from trying to control other people. It has to come from your own self-discipline, your own responses to others. Um, and so that, that's one thing. But what comes with that, the second thing, is a kind of self-monitoring. Um, and at the end of every day, for example, the, the, some of the Stoics would ask, um, how have I felt today? You know, have I felt ashamed? Have I felt anxious? Um, or have I been virtuous? What virtues have I displayed? And so at the end of the day, there was this kind of very honest reckoning of the human experience and taking it seriously, trying to understand why did I feel like that? Was it because I was trying to control things that I simply couldn't uh, in myself or the world? I need to give up because I can't. My source of anxiety is because I'm trying to control an uncontrollable world. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily help you deal with other people. Right. But it makes you more mindful of your own tendencies emotionally and intellectually. So well, a okay, kind of, can't uh, that also clash with some people's philosophy and produce more cognitive dissonance? You know, if it, like if they have a, uh, a, a, they believe that there's an all powerful creator that's guiding every move and has a plan for everything, you know, and you could, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, no, that, that that's a good question. Um, to look, the, the, the Stoics actually had an idea of a creator. Um, their idea of the creator was nature, basically, um, was the idea that there is a plan. We just have to learn to follow it. Um, and part of learning to follow it was using our rationality to distinguish between what we can control and what we can't. Okay. Uh, their, their whole message was you have this rational soul. Use it to identify how the world works and fit in with it. Um, so in that sense, it can be a profoundly conservative message. Okay. Uh, but uh, I don't think you have to believe in the Stoic nature to benefit from some of the Stoic practices. Um, so again, it's sort of a bit like yoga mm. or Tai Chi or Qigong where you, you can say, well, actually, these practices are quite useful. I can turn them to my own ends. So if you might be a stone-cold atheist, um, which I am, but still is charged here too. (laughs) Yeah. But still get a great deal from Stoic philosophy. Um, Also, I think Buddhist philosophy, um, another reason for sort of ongoing anxiety is, is this kind of grasping at the world um, is uh, constantly expecting the world to fulfill this expectation and this desire. And Buddhism can teach you to be a little bit more aloof, to, to stand back a little bit, not only from the world and its vicissitudes, 
but also from your own train of thought. And so a lot of um, Buddhist meditation is just about quietly observing your own thought processes in a fairly non-judgmental way. Yeah. Now, you don't have to buy into sort of reincarnation and other Buddhist ideas. Many of to, which were added after the, after the initial, you know, start of Buddhism. And it's one of those things where you've got philosophical Buddhism on one hand, and then you have the religious on the other hand, and, and the whole gray area in between them. But yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Buddhism grew in part out of out of Hinduism, and both share this idea that you're trying to escape from illusion. Now, we might disagree about what the illusions are, right? Uh, but I think the techniques again uh, are quite useful, and this is something that I think is actually coming up a lot more in philosophy in general. It's the idea of practices. Hmm. Um, so the idea of of taking up a way of life is not just about one single vision of human flourishing. Um, if you do these techniques, you must believe this. Right. It's about learning how to take up practices um, to basically to, to create uh, circumstances and ideas that you have developed. Um, and I, that's certainly how I approach the martial arts um, so that – these, these traditions of, of Zen or Shinto or Confucianism are all important and we can learn from them, but we don't have to accept them wholesale, um, you know, in order to use a roundhouse kick or a reverse punch. Yes. <laughs> um, getting back to your question in terms of dealing with the sort of the anxiety and stress or guilt or whatever it is after confrontation. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. At that point, I don't know how much um, you can do to help. What I think does help is training earlier to understand what confrontation is like. Now, a lot of those reality-based self-defense movements can be a bit cultish and they also buy into a kind of um, red in tooth and claw vision of society, which is often just false. It's a kind of fear-based right. vision of yeah. what life is like. It actually has very little to do with the lives of most middle-class people, um, certainly here and I'd say probably in the, in the States too. Yes. Um, but, but they do train you to get used to confrontation, um, to, to understand its nuances, to not be perhaps so tightly wound up by the, by the circumstances. Um, and you're referring think, to things like ambush training and training outside the dojo and realistic yeah, environments exactly. and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Exactly, yeah. And it's, it's, in some ways, it's just purely Skinnerian. You know, it's just training you to have a different response to the circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, uh, you know, if you don't fight very often, you do get into a fight. It can be so surreal, so unreal um, that it can take you a while to actually figure out what the hell's going on and what you're going to do about it. Yeah. But if you drill properly, um, hopefully, again, some of the uh, a rational response will be built into the circumstance. And I also think some of the martial arts that train you how to disarm or how to um, disempower without killing, without head strikes, for example, are very useful. And so I'm thinking of um, judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu which allow you to restrain and control without just kind of 
swinging at someone's head. Um, and certainly in Australia, there's been a lot of press about people who are punched in the head or in the face. They get knocked out. They hit their head on the concrete or the asphalt and they die. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's happened to, to sort of blokes on the street, but it's also happening to bouncers mm-hmm. who haven't been taught to restrain properly. Instead, they're just swinging. Uh, that is causing a hell of a lot of trauma physically and mentally. But if, if you're thinking about the situation rationally, if you're trying to make the best use of your energy as judo teaches, then it's probably better to control, to manage. You know, grappling um, is a good way of doing that. Yeah. And, you know, in something like judo, if it's life and death, you can switch that throw so the guy lands on his head if you have to, you know. But Yeah, exactly. No, nothing hits harder than the planet. Yeah, the ground never misses. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it goes back to your early point where you were saying, you know, if, if uh, that constant feedback that you get in the training environment with your partners can help produce that sort of automatic, <clears throat> excuse me, dimmer switch. You know, where you, re- you, you're able to almost instinctively recognize what the real threat level in a situation is and, and react accordingly. That's right. And I think some of the, um, some of the talk in martial arts, particularly some forms, is a, is a very paranoid, aggressive, sort of fear-based approach and right ninjas look, behind it, every bush hyper you know yeah, hyper vigilance exactly. yeah also that idea that you get in some sort of schools of, of ninjutsu that you know mixed martial arts is not real you know it's not the streets yeah. because <laughs> there's no multilava uh in the dojo um but you know as, as far as i'm concerned re- realistically training uh, with people who are resisting you and drilling these movements over and over again um, is probably more useful than just, you know, one-punch kills or swordsmanship or uh, all these sort of strange techniques that are kind of overkill, actually. Yeah, this is how you rip his you know, throat out. <laughs> sorry, say again? Oh, uh, just this is how you rip his throat out and castrate him all at the same time, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of overkill. I mean, again, you, you want um, the, the right action for the circumstances. And if you're training these kind of weird killing techniques, well, say you could pull them off and you can't, how would you train them? But say you could pull off, pull off these killing techniques, do you really want to go to jail just for defending yourself? Yeah, for the rest um, of your life. <laughs> yeah, why not just learn to control your opponent? Um, you know, it's it is it's kind of it's massive overkill based on watching far too many Steven Seagal films, right? And the thing is, it's it's so ironic that I th- I think we do you know at least as far as the developed world right now, we live in the safest world there's ever been for human beings, and it's entirely possible for a person to reach middle age and never be in a fight at all. Which is why you know a lot of this training can be really good if it does happen out of the blue. At least you'll have some grounding underneath you you know but exactly yeah yeah go ahead it's it's this is why i'm i'm more interested in what virtues can you develop in the martial arts what states of mind can you promote what rewards are there for these activities and it often has far more to do with sort of mental states 
and pleasure and camaraderie than it has to do with uh, being able to kill the mugger in seven ways. Um, it, it's, you know, that's, that's the advertising, but the actual art of it has yeah, far more to do with ordinary suburban life, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, no. And martial arts, you know, the traditional ones included, have adapted to, to cater to this new life, you know? Which I, exactly. Which, again, there's nothing wrong with, you know? No, as long as they don't... Um, they're not selling themselves as a kind of escape from modern life where, right. you know, and, you know, we, we've lost these virtues. We've lost courtesy and respect and kindness, but you can find that, uh, for $500 a month, uh, <laughs> un- uniform included in our Jojo. Right. Right. The good old argument from antiquity there. Uh, yeah, exactly. You always have to watch out for that when you're shopping for a martial arts school. Well, back in the old days, everything was perfect and men could leap 10 feet in the air from, you know, from a standing position. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Buddha, Buddha burned a hole in a cave wall just by looking at it. No, that was Bodhidharma. So tra- yeah. Sorry, you're right. Dhamma. That was Bodhidharma. And, and you too can be like Bodhidharma uh, if you train several times a day. Yes. You kill men with a key up. Yep, and you'll have disciples that will rip their own arms off to train with you. <laughs> That's right. It's the least they can do for the privilege. Exactly. It's a very exclusive club we run here. Yeah, all the marketing <laughs> techniques. And I, I think that's another place where you know a good grounding in philosophy or at least logic and critical thinking can uh, protect you, you know, uh, you know, when you're shopping for martial arts or when you're, you know, when you're practicing and just in life in general. So, you know. Philosophy is part of your self-defense system. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. In fact, there's a um, Gillian Russell has uh, a chapter on intellectual vices in um, martial arts and philosophy, where she talks about how it can get you used to deferring to authority, um, how it can get you used to not questioning claims of your own potency, and so on. And you really do need a good philosophy to come in and say, "Well, hold on." Um, how is that true? Is there any evidence? And why would we just accept your word for it? Can you actually demonstrate it? Well, if you can't demonstrate it, uh, when does it work? And so on. But her, her next um, essay, Julian's next essay, is on the question of, of violence in the martial arts and whether regularly doing martial arts um, removes some of the barriers to doing evil. And so that's a serious moral question for martial artists. Yeah. Um, if, if evil is sort of acting violently and maliciously without restraint, and if normal humans are kind of developed this kind of restraint, this sense of trying not to harm each other, what would it mean to get rid of that? What would it mean to, to get us to used to practicing violence? Um, and her conclusion is that this is a bona fide question for martial artists. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's also that, and this, this is, I think, fascinating, it might be beneficial for women but not for men. Mm. And the idea is that women might actually have more internal barriers to reacting physically than men, and it might actually be healthy for women to have those barriers sort of removed or weaker. Yeah. Um, which, I look, I... 
I think is a, a reasonable argument. I think so too, and it's it's one of those things where you know martial arts teachers, uh, uh, good ones anyway, have always tried to maintain some sort of selectivity about who they teach. It's the old saying of you know you don't want to create a tiger with wings. You don't you don't yep. want to take someone who's already morally compromised and tends toward evil, and then teach them how to be much more effective at hurting people. You know. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, they often tend to be some of the more gifted. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, there are some people just right out of the box are just mean as snakes and can fight like the devil. But, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you so don't want to you. teach that guy the quarter blood technique. Yeah. He'll turn around and use <laughs> it on right. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, getting, getting back to your question. Yes, I think um, thinking seriously about martial arts is really important. Um, and, so, you know, for at least two reasons. One, um, is your martial arts doing what it promises it's doing? Can you really kill a man with one punch? Can you really disarm uh, seven muggers just with that single technique? Um, is that really ancient wisdom uh, or was it just invented in modern uh, Japan and then mixed up with a bit with kind of American popular culture? Right. So that's, that's one thing. You know, are they really delivering what they promise? Think, think critically. The second reason is, what if they are delivering? What if it really is dangerous? What if you really can do serious harm? What are your ethical responsibilities? How do you feel about that? You know, in, in the military, we train people to kill, but we also have very high levels of post-traumatic stress disorder. And suicide uh, and, yeah. And, and suicide and, and drug abuse and so on. Well, okay, you're learning to harm. Are you prepared for that? Are you are you really prepared to use that lock? Um, are you really prepared to use that strike on the temple or whatever it is? Um, so, you know, I, I think those are two really important reasons why you should think seriously about the martial arts. Well, Damon, this has been a fantastic conversation, but I've already chewed up a lot of your time, and I know it's, it's, <laughs> it's a balmy summer day there in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> smoky as you said earlier it uh, is indeed and uh, you probably want to get out there and blow some smoke rings or something uh in the sunshine <laughs> but uh I, I, <laughs> if i can trouble you with one last question um sure we we like to ask people we get on to interview sometimes uh if they have what what i call uh either a feet of clay sort of story where uh you know the the sort of martial arts master whose pants fall down in the middle of his demo sort of thing or uh, what we call swapping paint stories, where your martial arts, whether it be in a fight or just you know uh, any way, where your martial arts has interacted with the real world in such a way as as you know it bailed you out of a situation, and you can take your pick. Uh, okay, um, I'll give you one story, um, which is why it's important to to think critically about. Your martial arts. Um, Excellent. When I, when, when I was in high school, there was a, a guy I didn't like very much called Nick. In fact, nobody liked Nick very much. Okay. But in the, in the asphalt playground where the basketball rings were and so on, an older student was picking on Nick. Uh, and being a smartass... I decided to get involved um, because I, I, I just, I've never liked, 
bullies. Yeah. I can't say it's very rational. It, it may be even a kind of narcissistic or egotistic response, but I just, I don't like bullies. And the end result was I got into a fight with this older student instead of Nick uh, because I intervened. At that point, nothing I'd learned in karate helped. Um, I, I blocked a few things, um, but I ended up getting a serious crack to the skull, which you know opened up my eye. I've still got the scar, actually. And I tried various... Uh, I, I kind of panicked a little bit after that and tried all kinds of fancy things like, you know, knife hand strikes to throats and things like that, which he just swatted away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then in the end... I got into a headlock. I got him into a headlock and kept um, applying pressure until he almost passed out. And that was my way of controlling the situation. And while I was holding him there in a headlock, I remember there was just blood streaming down my arm. And I was saying something like, are you happy now? You've got what you wanted. I was furious, but also I was a little bit upset, you know, that it had come to this. And then I and then I just I just left him there and walked away and just sort of said you know I hope you're happy with yourself. And then I, it turned out I didn't I wasn't there, but it turned out he he basically was there on the ground for a long time after I left him because he couldn't breathe um, as a result of of my headlock. And there were a whole load of lessons that I, I learned from that. I mean, there was so much packed into that. It was, you know, it was just a kind of ordinary schoolboy scrap, but it was pretty important to me and it happened fairly early on. So I learned a lot from it. The first thing was a lot of what I learned in karate was useless. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the strikes in particular, um, maybe they'd be useful to someone else, but I hadn't drilled them properly. I'd never learned to apply them properly. So they were, they were nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing was that grappling came far more naturally to me than striking and I was able to control my opponent and sort of get a fairly good outcome for me using that headlock and it was on, it was on the uh, ground. I was, I was sitting controlling him on the ground uh, rather than standing up, okay. uh, which was something that, I would, that later would prompt me to to take up judo. And as soon as I saw the rise of BJJ, I realized how much I'd missed and how useful a lot of that is. Um, the third thing was how unprepared I was for the emotional consequences of the fight. You know, what, I, didn't, I didn't understand what my, my smart mouth was getting me into. And I stand by the sentiment, the idea that I wanted to intervene and stop someone being a bully, yeah. but I really hadn't thought through what would happen and I wasn't prepared for what would happen. And that happened again years later when I ended up getting into a fight with you know, like seven guys at the movies because, again, they were being bullies and I still hadn't learned my lesson. I still really wasn't prepared for that emotional uh, fallout. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, techniques don't work. <laughs> grappling's really useful and complete emotional unpreparedness. Um, you know, but again, it's back to that idea of a virtue. There was something that was driving you beyond 
what you thought was going to work out best for yourself. You know, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about there. If I, I can't see, I can't stand to see people being picked on or pushed around either. That that kind of dominance yeah. just pisses me off to no end. And I will raid, I'll, I'll wade right into something that I know my chances of, you know, dancing out the other side of are kind of slim, but I just don't care. I get so angry at them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is, I'm not saying I don't like that part of myself. I'm proud that I intervened and that I have intervened in the past in that and in other situations. Um, it's more <clears throat> reflecting on my own lack of foresight. Right. Um, and, and look, I suppose part of it is also just the technical aspect I really wasn't prepared mm-hmm. to control that situation and I could have controlled it better had I been a more gifted fighter. And that's, that to me is a very interesting point. Um, you know, a lot of uh, some Aikido practitioners talk about, you know, peace and, 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 you know, the importance of avoiding doing harm and so on. Right. But... A lot of their techniques, if you do them on the street with someone who can't break fall. It's going to do harm. You are going to seriously injure someone. You, you might put someone in hospital or, or, um, uh, or even kill them. Um, not everyone knows how to break fall. Hell, I didn't, and I did years of karate. Right. Um, that's why, partly why I injured myself in judo. But in order to, to, in order to do good sometimes... You, you you may have to be prepared ethically and emotionally to do harm. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I suppose that one of the points of that story is that I don't think I was quite prepared to do harm. I had all kinds of techniques um, that had been drilled into me, most of which didn't work. I had an idea of my own... Uh, ethos that it's important to intervene and that it's important to stop bullies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sitting there really locking in that that headlock, choking this guy, feeling him struggle. Yeah. Uh, I was furious at the time, but it really was not very pleasant at all. And in subsequent occasions, it really, it's it's a very unpleasant thing. And I, and I, I think if you're going to sell the sort of ethical content of the martial arts you really need to get people used to this idea of doing harm and ask do you want to do harm yeah it's like you know uh, somebody can carry a gun if they're small and weak for self-defense and that's great because it's it it evens things out but if you're not willing to use it then you shouldn't carry it at all because it'll wind up turned back on you you know and exactly yeah. yeah and i think sometimes these these things are a psychological crutch they're not necessarily tools for self-defense. Exactly. They might make they might make you feel safer, but but um, they might actually be quite counterproductive. Yep. Well, all right, that's a great story. And on that note, I will let you go. But first, tell everyone where they can find more about you. Uh, if you have a web page or anything like that, and what you what your projects coming up soon are. Okay. Well, yes, you can you can find me at uh, www.damonyoung. .com.au. Um, I am on Twitter at Damon A. Young. My latest book is How to Think About Exercise. Um, I'm not sure if it's released in the States yet, but it's certainly released internationally um, via Pan Macmillan. 
Okay. And uh, my next book on martial arts is uh, Philosophy and the Martial Arts Engagement, which again is edited uh, by Graham Priest. Okay. Well, uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out to do this with us. It was a, it was a fabulous conversation. I've really learned a lot today. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody, we're back. Interesting conversation there with Mr. Damon Young. I want to thank him again for coming on and doing that. And also quickly point out there are a couple of times in there where I probably sound like a gibbering idiot. But <laughs> if you listen at the end, there will be a little secret bumper for you there. Uh, something was going on on my end. And at one point, you will hear classical music just barge in out of nowhere and play for a minute during the interview. This was going on consistently. I don't think he could hear it, but... My computer was freaking out and popping up the iTunes unbidden and just starting to play stuff. So, uh, you know, I edited a lot of that out, but you can still hear me flummoxed when I'm talking. <laughs> Good times. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> episode 50 is in the can. I uh, hope that was gala enough for you. And we're... Looking forward to the next 50 episodes. I want to thank some people running up to this that have helped out a lot. Of course, Craig and Jay, Magnificent Jay, goes without saying. Uh, I want to thank the wives, Thais, Ampai, for putting up with all the nonsense we've done, uh, ruining their Sunday afternoons. <laughs> and uh, all our contributors, Jeff Westfall, who has a segment coming up after this. Woohoo, look out for that. It's already generating some heat. It's called The Elephant in the Room. So stick around, let him know what you think. And uh, there'll be links to where that article's posted as well. Uh, what else we got here? All the contributors, Ryan, uh, you know, you guys couldn't do it without you. And uh, I hope you're willing to continue helping out with this weird project as it goes forward. I need to tell you now, if you're watching the iTunes, uh, if that's where you, where you get your podcast from, we're doing really well over there, and uh, we even got shown in their uh, What's Hot segment in our, our category, so uh, every little bit helps, folks, and I wanted to bring this up. Uh, if you would do one thing for me, if you're just a casual listener, just do one thing for me. We've got 47, like four and five star reviews on iTunes, so since it's 50 episodes, Somebody get busy, get out there, write a little review, leave a little rating, and let's push it over 50 as well. Let's try to keep the reviews keeping up with the episodes. That would be sweet. Um, so thanks in advance for whoever does that for me. And uh, also, uh, if you're getting your podcast off the iTunes store, you'll notice that episodes drop off after 50. So one and two, I think, have already disappeared. But don't worry, they're not gone forever. They are on the webpage. What's that webpage, you ask? Well, it's www.highoutpodcast.com. And you can go over there and download those episodes that fall off the iTunes page, at least for the time being. Uh, 
While you're over at the website, if you want to comment, check out the uh, show notes. They're really worth looking at, folks, especially if there's something you missed or didn't quite get. They're thorough. Ryan does a great job on them. Also, you can email us with any content or questions at mailbag at highoutpodcast.com. You can hit me directly, dave at highoutpodcast.com, if you want something back channel. Yeah, that's about it. Our Facebook page, go like it. Things are going great. Episode 50, like I said, it's in the can. Had a great time. Thanks again to Big Al, too, as always. And, uh, oh, I should go ahead and mention, since I'm getting all sentimental here on episode 50, blah, blah, blah. It's just 5-0, right? But it feels like a landmark. Let me go ahead and thank my other sometime co-hosts, uh, Bruce Ryder, who's out there rocking the nation as I speak. Actually, he's rocking the globe as I speak. So uh, <clears throat> drop in and tell us about that when you get back, Bruce. And, uh, you know, my wife, Thais, Alan Pittman, who has dropped in on the mics. All you cats, and hopefully we can involve more and more people in the regular conversation going forward. Oh, Sambo Steve. He's still present. I almost forgot him. But there's your shout-out, Steve. Love you, brother. All right. That's it for us. Until fantastic episode 51, we will see ya. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. The Elephant in the Room. The Marshall Brain commentary series deals with what I perceive to be the intersection between martial arts, scientific skepticism, and brain science, hence the name. I have so far recorded over a dozen of them on various topics. Six of them have so far been included as part of the most excellent Haya podcast. With this particular one, I will finally get around to the elephant in the room when it comes to martial skepticism. Chi power. Recently, on Facebook, I saw a video of a martial artist from Finland named Yuka Lampila, who called what he did Empty Force, or EFO, and claimed that with it he could control an attacker without touching him. His Facebook page proclaims him the founder of EFO. The video begins with clips of Lampila fending off attacks from his students. As they approach, he waves his arms, sometimes he twitches, and in each case, the attacker seems to be magically thrown to the mat without ever being touched by Mr. Lampila. He also shows an example of controlling someone on the ground. He kneels calmly beside a supine student with the back of his hand resting gently on the man's chest. I don't need to use any energy, he asserts, as the student appears to try with all his might to regain his feet to no avail. It is a sad display of martial arts charlatanism. Unfortunately for Mr. Lampila, a group of skeptics were in attendance this day, and several of them volunteered to be controlled by Mr. Lampila. His chosen method was to have the volunteer try to push him. He failed in each case to stop them from doing so. The skeptics were admirably polite giving Mr. Lampila an ample, ample number of opportunities to prove his claims and not demonstrably gloating at his failures. 
when one of them calmly asked him if he would like to demonstrate his defense against a punching attack, Mr. Lampila declined. He later invited everyone to pay for and attend his seminar the next day. I've been involved in the martial arts since 1971. I've been teaching martial arts since 1975. In this time, and long before I became aware of formal scientific skepticism, I grew to see that a lot of people are drawn to martial arts styles that are based on pseudoscience. The arts that are the biggest culprits by far are the arts that base their claims of effectiveness on the development and manipulation of a purported form of internal energy. Whether you call it chi, ki, prana, the force, or empty force, it has never, to my knowledge, been proven to exist through robust, double-blind, replicated scientific experiments. If it is a form of energy, where are the scientific instruments that can detect its levels? Is this energy chemical, radiant, nuclear, kinetic, electromagnetic, mechanical, ionizing? Is this energy in the form of waves or particles? At the risk of building a straw man, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and guess that practitioners and apologists for these arts would say that science doesn't know everything and that chi power is as yet unexplained by science. Well, if there is a form of energy that is unknown to science, wouldn't it follow that a large number of physicists would be pursuing a future Nobel Prize by attempting to prove the existence of it? In the last 43 years, I've seen quite a few demonstrations of this power. I have yet to be impressed. Mostly what I've seen were sad carnival sideshow tricks, many of which I can easily explain, if not reproduce, without resorting to magic. The rest were feckless displays like that of Mr. Lampila. I assert that on the rare occasions when these practitioners do defend themselves successfully, it is through properly applied principles of leverage and body mechanics, and not the magical power of key. This phenomenon raises further questions. First, what possesses people to train in such a system of martial arts? Second, what is in the minds of people who already train in such systems and continue to do so after seeing their master embarrassed, as was Mr. Lampila in the video? As for what draws people in the first place, I will cite what scientific skepticism has taught me. Human life experience is complex. A trait of humans is that we tend to be put off by complexity and to seek simple answers. Perhaps this stems from an early genetic history as prey animals. In such an environment, time spent on deeply rational thinking can get you killed. Quick and dirty heuristics are survival mechanisms. Perhaps we have an instinct to seek out simplicity. Whatever the origin of our propensity to seek out simple answers to complex questions, it can make us prone to magical thinking and leave us easy prey for con men and charlatans. Lots of folks are put off by the daunting challenge of thorough and extensive training in practical martial arts. It is a lot of hard work. It is time consuming. It costs money. It would be so much easier if one could avoid the calisthenics, stretching, setbacks and occasional injuries and simply cultivate one's potent internal energy. It is also frequently the case that some people wish to learn self-defense, but have a profound sense of revulsion regarding violence. 
Unfortunately, these sweet-natured people are usually powerfully drawn by the lure of a martial arts style that claims to be both effective and humane through the use of chi. I have a soft spot for these folks, and I deeply respect their pacifism. As a result, I am especially angered when they fall prey to arrogant, condescending, cynical con artists who serenely take their money while harboring secret contempt for their foolishness. The best way to be able to defend yourself while striving not to harm your attacker is to train in practical martial arts until you reach a reasonable level of competence. A person who is not credibly competent at self-defense can no more claim to be a pacifist than a eunuch can claim to be a celibate. As for explaining what keeps people already training in these styles in the face of a lack of evidence, there are parallels in other forms of pseudoscience. Whether it is faith healing, alternative medicine, astrology, or any other form of what James Randi refers to as woo, there are two types of followers. The first is the true believers, who have so much of themselves invested in whatever their belief is that they engage in cognitive dissonance and turn a blind eye to evidence because their very sense of identity has become dependent on their belief being true. Humans are lamentably prone to profound self-deception. Many people take up martial arts for reasons other than self-defense. A very common motivation, whether at the conscious level or not, is that it can make you feel better about yourself. Many people have a trait that psychology calls the fantasy-prone personality. For those with FPP, a martial art based on magic seems a perfect fit, engaging the fascination with the supernatural while building up the student's self-image. The second type of follower is the apprentice con artist, who understands the game, sees the perks that the practitioner enjoys, and is paying dues in the hopes of being the successor to the master or the doctor. It is worth pointing out that martial arts masters pushing this stuff also fall into these categories of true believers and cynical con artists as well. What to do about martial arts con artists? Well, I'm not fond of government regulation. There are too many disparate styles of practical martial arts to make that workable. I think the best way to deal with them is to shine the actinic light of scientific skepticism on them. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Don't be put off by failures in this regard. Human nature will always yield a steady supply of victims for pseudoscientific predators. Like practitioners of alternative medicine, the practitioners of pseudoscientific martial arts are unencumbered by the rigor of valid logic and the scientific method. Battling these people is like brushing your teeth or mowing your lawn. You never permanently finish the job, but you keep it up anyway. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think at rpmartialarts.com. If you have any suggestions for topics for the martial brain, let me know. If you like the martial brain, please contact the good folks at the Haya podcast and tell them. If you like the Haya podcast, let them know. Give them a good rating on iTunes and like them on Facebook. It helps to know that someone out there is listening. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brains.
Well, it, it kind of touches back on an earlier point you made, too, about uh, my iTunes is going crazy. Sorry about that. Yes, You're quit right. iTunes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's playing a little musical interlude for us there. And you know, Will Rogers, a lot of hmm. people know he was full-blooded Cherokee Indian. He just said that to get into college. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't have the, the Hope scholarship. Of course, when I went to school, they had the Dope scholarship. That's how you got through, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>